Thanks so much, guys. What a great job. Let's give these guys a, a great hand that led us so well in worship. Fantastic. Why don't you grab your seats? Are there any cat lovers out there that may need a bit of healing at the end of the service? I'm going to be praying for you. I don't know if it'll be healing or deliverance, though. But no, I'm just, no, sorry. I just, that was a bit more salt in the wound. Uh, but so good to be here. And uh, I, I feel like God's really given me a word uh, for today. Uh, but before I get to that, uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, you know, we actually, I, for, for some people will have heard me speak before, some might not have, but I, I traveled as an itinerant for about nine years and all over the world. We lived in America for about four years. Uh, we came back because of COVID in 2020, but really it was God. And God kind of called us to plant a church on the Gold Coast and uh, suffering for Jesus on the Gold Coast. Uh, but actually, it was a place where I radically got saved and God called us back there to start a church. And, you know, if you ever know, and, and you guys as a church are pioneering churches, but when you pioneer a church, and especially when you're, you're completely doing it on your own in a sense, it's not from another church, it's kind of not for the faint-hearted. It's literally starting with nothing and believing for something. And, uh, you know, you have no people, no money, nothing, just kind of a vision from God. And Emerge Church, Pastor Mark and Pastor Nina are great friends of mine. You guys were one of the first churches where Pastor Mark rang me up and said, hey, we're giving $5,000 as a church uh, to celebrate church. So I want to say thank you so much to everyone because that has just meant the world and has makes such a big difference. And uh, I know that uh, Pastor Mark, I was meant to be here and he was going to give me that particular check in front of everyone. And then COVID happened, I think, last time and that didn't end up happening. But I just want to say a massive thank you. And uh, God's been doing great things on the Gold Coast and we're seeing lives transformed and changed and, and you've played a part in that. So thank you so much. Can you give yourselves a big hand? I really appreciate it. You know, I, I'm going to, many will have heard my story before, but let me just touch on it for a moment. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in Melbourne and, uh, you know, my parents divorced when I was young and I ended up on a whole heap of drugs. Uh, at 13 or 12, I started to, you know, to, to binge drink marijuana. By 15, I was injecting uh, amphetamines. I was taking acid, ecstasy. Uh, at 16, I overdosed on an acid trip and had a very demonic encounter uh, that really left me with what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis. You know, from the age of 16 to about 23, I would literally hear voices. The television would speak to me. The radio would speak to me. Uh, I was suicidal. And, you know, I had this one lady who was my auntie who had been praying for me for 17 years that I would one day encounter the love of Jesus. Can I, can I just encourage you that no matter how far someone looks like they're gone, don't ever stop praying. Don't ever stop believing. You know, imagine if she had stopped after 13 years or 14 years or 15 years, but she just kept coming to Jesus and bringing my name before Jesus. And after 17 years of prayer, living on the Gold Coast because I'd moved there to keep partying and doing drugs, I, I rang that particular auntie just for something different. And, and as I heard her voice, I literally had a radical encounter with Jesus. And at 23 years old in a little unit in surface paradise, I got on my hands and knees and I said, God, I give you my life. Come and live inside of my heart. And, and I think it was about two weeks later, I walked into a church the next day, which was Surf City Christian Church on the Gold Coast. 
Two weeks later, I had an encounter where God turned up in my house and He literally set me free of every... That's the phone. Uh, I thought it might have been mine. That's why I was getting a bit worried. And, and so it's, it's a cat person. Anyway... Uh, and in that moment, he just completely set me free. He healed my mind and just an absolute miracle that took place in that moment. Come on, God is so good, isn't he? He still does miracles today. And, uh, you know, I remember once I kind of got switched on to God, God began to reveal to me the, really the key reason why it ended up being a drug addict, what society would call a junkie, really what I would have been described as. And of course, there were kind of many contributing factors. There was a lot of drugs around my relatives and family members. My dad did a lot of drugs, uh, many of my aunties and uncles. Uh, of course, there were the friendship groups that I was constantly drawn to that were just not the right kind of, you know, that you become who your friends are. And, and then, of course, there were the decisions that I made that I'm responsible for. But I remember God revealing to me, as a newer Christian, as he began to bring healing into my heart, because there was a lot of hurt with 23 years of being a drug addict and, and really just being in life, who knows, we end up with a lot of hurt in our heart. And, and, and so God began to reveal to me that what happened, the thing that really triggered me on that path of drug addiction was the simple fact that when I was five or six years old, uh, my mum and dad divorced. And, and as a little boy, I took that, that my dad, who was my hero, uh, no longer loved me. And I would still visit my dad every Friday night, and he lived a pretty, you know, I'm great friends with my dad to have a great relationship, but he lived a life of partying and drugs and excessive alcohol and sleeping around. And, and as my dad was kind of taken away, in a sense, we'd just see him now on Friday nights. And this is what God revealed to me in my subconscious I got this thing in my heart that my dad's love had been taken away and I needed to get it back. And so subconsciously as a little boy, I watched what my dad valued and he valued sleeping around, taking drugs, being the person at the party that would make everyone laugh, getting excessively drunk. And as a little boy growing up, I subconsciously thought, if I can get really good at all of those things, then maybe I'll get my dad's love back. But you know the story, that didn't get me his love back, but it caused me to be a 23-year-old uh, that, that society would call a junkie that had no job, no friends, had, had no money, uh, not, not many prospects about life. And, and while society would have seen me as a, a mentally ill junkie with not much to offer, God the Father saw me as a, a little boy that was simply on a quest to try and find his earthly dad's love. And I told you the story where in a moment at 23, I was radically set free from the addiction. But there was still the junk that was on the inside that I'd been carrying since I was a six-year-old little boy that now I was going to project on my heavenly father. See, because then I went into this mode of being radically saved and set free. But, but subconsciously, I did the same thing because I had this fear. I wonder how long it'll be before my heavenly Father also deserts me. Or, or I wonder if I don't do all the right stuff and jump through all the right hoops. I wonder how long before He says, I'm not good enough to be His Son. And so again, without realising in my subconscious, 
I started to, 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 to look at what God valued and He valued serving in church and, and giving and telling people about Jesus and reading the Bible and all those things which are good things. But I started doing all those things out of an unhealthy manner because I thought if I don't do all of these things, then His love will be taken away from me. I'd serve in every single thing that you could. I would even, I would even turn up to the women's meetings, okay? I was messed up. And so, and I would try and be this like super Christian. And hear, hear me, serving is amazing, we should serve. Giving is amazing. Reading our Bible is amazing. The only thing that becomes unhealthy is when I'm doing it to earn something from the Father that I already have as a free gift. I serve because He loves me regardless. I give because He loves me regardless. And I was at this point where I was trying to earn something that I already had. And it would normally last three to six months where I'd almost feel burnt out and I'd end up at an altar where I'd just weep in His presence. And every time He'd say the same things, He'd say, Lucas, you're my son. And I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. It doesn't matter if you were to go lay on the beach for the next three months, you're still my boy, you're still my son. And I love you and I believe in you. And this took a a process, if I be honest, of changing this mindset to start to see that he's my dad regardless of my behaviour, that he loves me because I'm his boy, I'm his son, and I don't have to earn his, his favour. And you could, in a sense, say that I was radically found, but at the same time in those early years, I was lost in religion. I was lost in works-based Christianity. And I want to look at a a scripture that's very well known in just a moment. And in my Bible, it's titled The Lost Son, the parable of the lost son. And, you know, that title, I think they kind of miss the mark. It's not a true definition describing the story. And just before you think that I'm speaking heresy, the Word of God is the Word of God. It's inspired and breathed by God. But actually the titles, the chapters and the verses were, were only instituted in the 1600s by publishers. And I'm thankful they put them in because who knows it makes it a lot easier to say to everyone, hey, turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Uh, who knows we'd be here a while if I had to say, hey, turn to that part in the Bible where it talks about blah, blah, blah. And so I'm thankful they did it, but I believe they missed the mark because it's not a story about a lost son. There's a lot more to it than that. You know, we're going to read a part of the text that's not so famous in a moment, but the part that many of us have read and have heard many sermons about, let me just kind of share it in my own words. It starts with a boy, a younger son, and he kind of says to his dad, I've had enough. He says, I'm out of here. Give me my inheritance so that I can go and do my own thing. And he sets off, the Bible says, to a distant country where he squanders his inheritance in wild living, in partying, in, in, in prostitution, in, in, in wild living. And eventually all these people that are around him because he's got this money, eventually there comes a famine and he ends up flat broke. And the famine causes him to be so destitute and broke that he takes a job feeding pigs, which for a Jewish boy is an abomination. Let me just sidetrack for a moment. Someone needs to hear this. Sometimes a famine 
is actually not from the devil, but the famine is the gift of God because it was the vehicle that was sent by heaven to bring you back to where you were meant to be. See, sometimes God sends a famine not to punish, but but because it was during the famine that He came to His senses and said, I'm going to go back to my Father. If it hadn't been for the famine, He would have stayed where He was. But sometimes the thing you think is from the devil is actually a vehicle that the Father has sent to bring you back to where He wants you to be so that He can bring more blessing on your life. And so He comes to His senses and He comes back and many will have heard the story that I love this. It says, well, he's a long way off. The father sees it and the father runs toward him. And I love that thought because you, you, you can't, I've got glasses on now because I don't have good sight. But even when you've got good sight, you don't accidentally see someone that is a long way off. If someone is a long way off, you don't ever accidentally see them. You only see them when they're a long way off if you're intently looking for that person. And it paints a beautiful picture of the father that had lost his boy that was, yes, he was out sleeping with prostitutes. Yes, he was doing the wrong thing. But the father didn't kick him to the curb. The father stood waiting every single day. I hope today's the day that my boy returns home. And I love this, it says that he runs to him and I imagine this boy in his destitute clothes with the smell of pig muck all over him, the stench of the sinful life that he had been living. But I love the father runs to him And he doesn't say, hey, go and get changed first and then we'll embrace. But with all of the muck and the sin and the dirt, he grabs the boy and he kisses him on the neck and he loves on his son. And then I love the first thing he says is he says, put the robe on him, which speaks of a robe of righteousness. So you've got to understand, God put a robe of righteousness on him, not because God was freaked out by his sin. But God wanted to cover his sin so that nobody else would see it. It wasn't because God was freaked out by the sin. God says, quickly, let's put the robe on you so that no one else sees you in this state. That they'll only see that you're a son of the Most High God. And he puts the robe on him. He puts a ring on his finger, which speaks of authority. And then he puts sandals on his feet, which speak of destiny. You know, one of the things as Christians that we kind of do well is we, we, we believe that God gives second chances. But, but one of this, the, the, this, the wrong things we do with that, and it's a, it's a religious thing, is that we have this thing in our mind that God does give second chances, but now you have to take second place. We have this mindset that, well, because I messed up, now I've got to take second best or third best. Or let me tell you, God is so good, so gracious, so loving that even when you mess up, He'll still allow you to finish first. He'll make it look like even the thing that was never meant to happen, it wasn't part of His will, but life will end up so good when you commit back to Him that people will look at it and go, I know that wasn't meant to happen, but sure, it seems like part of the plan because of the good that came out of it. See, someone needs to hear that right now. You need to stop walking around feeling like you're gonna have to finish second or third. Let me tell you, you might have messed up, but you're still gonna finish first. You're still walking right now in the the perfect will of God. And so it's a beautiful picture of the Father 
And then we find ourselves in the not so popular part of this text about the older brother that I want to speak on in Luke 15, verse 25 to 32. I think the guys have got that, that text. It says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. See, I, I, sorry, I think it's meant to start at verse 25. Did we get that or not? I can open my Bible. We could go old school. That's probably me that wrote the wrong uh, thing there. Did we get that or not? Verse 20. There we go. Look at that. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called. You've got to understand that the, the younger son has just come home. He called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he was back, has him back safe and sound. Watch this. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Who knows that if you're angry about someone coming back into the kingdom of God, you might be a little bit more lost than the person that just got found. And so he's angry. And so his father, watch this, his father went out and pleaded with him, come into the party. Don't miss out on the party. And then the next scripture. But he answered, Father, watch this. Look at all these years that I've been at Emerge Church. I've worked on the car park. I've been tithing. I've done a connect group. I've done ushers. I've been on cafe. Where's my party? I'm paraphrasing just in case you're wondering. But basically he goes into this thing of works. Look at all that I've done. Where's my party? And I love this. Oh, sorry, if you could keep it there. I love this. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead, but now he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. See, the reality is this shouldn't be called the parable of the lost son. It should be called the parable of the two lost sons. Because one son was lost in the world, the other son was lost in religion. He was lost in works-based Christianity. Remember I told you that this book, when you read this particular text, there was no chapters, no verses, no titles. And when Jesus told this particular parable, He didn't tell this one by itself. He told three parables, but they're all one. Do you remember? He told the parable about a lost sheep. That, that left the what? The safety and comfort of the pen. And because it left the comfort and safety of the pen, it got caught up in the thickets. And because the shepherd loved the sheep so much, he went and untangled the sheep that was caught up in the thickets because he'd left the safety of the pen and he restored him. But then at the same time, no chapters, no verses, no titles. It talks about a woman who represents God and she had a coin that was lost. And the coin, it wasn't lost outside. It was actually lost inside the house. It was lost in the perimeter and boundaries of the house. And so she, uh, because she loved the coin that was lost, she put on the light. She swept and swept and swept until she found the coin that was lost. And then she celebrated no chapters, no titles, no verses. It goes straight into the next story. And Jesus said there was a man who represents God and he had two sons. The younger son, let's just say that he was a sheep. 
that chose to leave the comfort and safety of the pen. And because he left the safety and comfort of the house of the pen, he got caught up in the thickets of life. He ended up bound by a whole heap of things. But the shepherd was so moved by love that he went to meet him to untangle him so that he could be restored to where he was meant to be restored to. But then in that same parable, it talks about another story, an older brother. And let's just say the older brother, well, let's call him a coin because he was in the house. He never left the house like his brother. He turned up to church every single Sunday, but he was lost in religion. It had become about works. It had become about ticking off a box that I've done church. He was lost in religion. And really, it's a story of two sons, one that was lost in the world, one that was lost in the house. And I would actually say that sometimes it's more dangerous to be lost in religion than it is to be lost in the world. And the reason I say that is because at least when you're lost in the world, you always know that you eventually need to be saved. Like when the younger brother was messing up with prostitutes, there wasn't a moment where he didn't think, you know what, I eventually need to get back to the house of the Father. But when you're lost in religion, you sometimes don't even know that you've become lost. You know, one of the ways that you know when you're lost in religion is actually when, remember he said to the, the, the older brother, he said, come into the party. When your relationship with God has stopped being full of life, maybe it's because religion has got on the inside. Now again, I'm not preaching a theology that says if you become a Christian, life will just be one party because that would be wrong. There are mountaintops and there are valleys. But if there's not an element in worship and occasionally when you hear the Word of God and occasionally when you open up the Scriptures that there is life and it's real and it's alive and He's speaking to you and it causes a party to get on the inside despite everything that's happening. If that's not happening, I wonder if it's just become about works. See, the, the whole thing of, of a religious spirit is its agenda within the church is to distort the way we see the Father. See, don't you think it's amazing in that same parable, Jesus paints a picture of the Father. A father that doesn't judge, a father that, that, that runs towards his son, a father that holds him even with the muck over his life and kisses his neck, a father that restores, a father that blesses. And that picture of the, the youngest son, it's the perfect picture of who the father is because Jesus is explaining it. But somehow that older brother is looking at the same person that Jesus has just described, but he sees someone very different. He sees someone that's hard. He sees someone that's not happy. He sees someone that he's busting his gut but gets nothing in return. Isn't it amazing that they were both looking at the same man, but one perception was completely distorted. And, and, and that's what religion will do. I wanna give you two quick things and then we're gonna pray. Two things that, that I believe religion will distort the way that you see the Father will affect your everyday life is number one, he saw him as a taskmaster instead of a rewarder. A lot of people see God as a taskmaster. You know, I don't know about you, but if someone in my life is a bit of a taskmaster, I don't really wanna hang around them a lot because every time you get around them, they've got another job for you. 
and there's not really much reward involved. In other words, they demand a whole lot, but they don't give much in return. And religion will cause you to see God as a taskmaster who simply demands a lot, but doesn't give much in return which is so not who God is. He's a rewarder. He loves to bless. He loves to reward. And so we see in verse 29, it's where we've already read it, but it's where the older brother, he says, look at all that I've done. Look at my list of works that I've done. And then he asks that question, where's my party? How come I've never had a party? And I think it's in verse 31. I love where the father responds. He says, But son, you're always with me. And everything I have is actually yours. I want you to catch this. It says, son, you're always with me. I would put to you that geographically he was with him, but in heart, he wasn't with him. Who knows that you can come to church and be in the worship, but you're not really in the worship. You can come to church and hear the message and you're in the room, but you're not really in the room. And I would put to you that he was geographically with the Father, but he wasn't with the Father. Because when the devil tries to get you to see God in a wrong image like a taskmaster, what ends up happening is my relationship with him becomes less. Because I don't wanna hang around with someone that every time I go to him, he's just given me another thing I have to do and there's never any blessing or reward. He's a taskmaster. I start to retreat. See, and that's why the devil wants you to get that religious mindset because of that key. God said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. Watch this. It is the more that you are with him, the more that you're connecting with an awesome God, a loving Father, a good God, the more that you're with Him in the Word of God, with Him in prayer, with Him in worship at home, the more that you're with Him, the more that your eyes are open to the fact that everything He has, it's actually mine as well. Peace, that's mine instead of depression. Freedom instead of anxiety. Freedom instead of addiction. Prosperity instead of lack. Healing instead of sickness. The more that I'm with Him, the more that my eyes are open that every single thing He owns, it's actually mine as well because I'm part of the family. But see, religiosity will cause you to see Him as a taskmaster. But you've got to know that God's a rewarder. If you, if you study the Word of God, there's so many Scriptures that talk about reward. It says that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. He loves to reward It says when the Word gets sown in your heart, it produces 30, 60, or 100-fold. He's a rewarder. And I'm not gonna go right into it right now, but the, the, the principle of sowing and reaping. If you ever do a study of that, please do it. It never speaks about seed time without also mentioning harvest time. It doesn't speak about giving without mentioning receiving. It doesn't speak about sowing without also mentioning reaping. Because God's a rewarder. See, what the devil is okay with you giving because if you keep giving, and and this means of everything, your time, your finance, if you keep giving, 
but don't tap into receiving, eventually you'll become bitter and disgruntled and you'll say enough's enough. But if you tap in to giving and then by faith receiving, I'm telling you, you'll become addicted to sowing because you know that God is a rewarder and I'm gonna keep sowing and then I'm looking for Him to be a rewarder so that I can reap. You know, I don't want to upset anyone. If this has been said different here, please forgive me, okay, and I'm wrong. But I personally don't like when people say, don't give to get. Now, before you judge me, okay, I understand why we say it, but I actually feel like it sometimes does more to the detriment because it stops people from attaching faith to what they're actually sowing. And if you get really upset, God actually gave to get. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His one and only Son so that whoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. God did not give His greatest seed and say, well, I don't really care if I get anything in return. He gave His greatest seed so that every time all over the world when someone else says yes to Jesus Christ and eternal life, He says, I'm so glad that I sowed the seed. Now again, he loved the world. So, so that's where I understand why people say it. When you give, your motivation should be love. I, I don't purely give to get. I give because my motive is love and I wanna see the kingdom of God advance. I wanna see other people find what I've found. So my motive is love, but you know what? He's a rewarder. Every time I give, I'm gonna attach faith because my God's not a taskmaster. He is also a rewarder. Just if the keyboarder could come. You know, I remember a time, it, it was when we were in America and, you know, it was a big step of faith for us to, to move to America. And we had done five years of traveling all over the world as an itinerant and my calendar was booked a year in advance and things were going amazing. We we're earning really good money and, and God was using us in a powerful way. And then He calls us to move to America. And he calls us to move somewhere where no one knew who we were. And when you're an itinerant, you kind of need people to know who you are so that your calendar fills. You know, it's just practical. And we kind of went in obedience to God and we had saved a lot of savings to be able to make it happen. Some people gave to that particular thing so that we could go. And you know, the first year or so, it was, it was pretty tough. It was just a grind. It was believing God. And, but we were in a church that really was a, a faith-filled church and really believed in the principle of sowing and reaping, which I've always believed. I have a love-hate relationship with sowing and reaping. I love it and I hate it. But, you know, I hate it because I have flesh that says, well, I don't really wanna do it, but I love it because I know that he's a rewarder. And I love seeing the miracle and the blessing that it unleashes. And so I remember we went through this period, we were there and, and we're in this, this church, it's a real faith church. And I just started believing. I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna believe I was living in the US. I'm gonna believe for God to give me $10,000. And so each week I would just start praying. I'd say, God, I, I, I thank you right now that somehow you're just gonna bless me with $10,000. I've never seen that happen. I'm gonna believe for $10,000. And the first time I pray it, I don't know if God does this to you, He flips it around on me. And He says, but you've never sown in tens. He says, you've sown lots in thousands, but you've never sown in tens. And, and so as soon as I heard that, I'm like, get behind me, Satan. That's from the devil. I'm just asking for $10,000, God. Don't you hate when God just flips it on you? And because I'm stubborn, each week I keep praying for this $10,000. And every time I pray it, I hear this voice that says, but you haven't sown in tens. 
You sow in ones. And if you sow in tens, you'll reap in tens. And for probably three, four months, I don't tell anyone. I don't tell my wife. This thing's bugging me. And then it comes time where our church, I'm sure I think you guys do it as well, where you do your big offering. And it was coming time for that in our church. And we were in Australia for two weeks and we we're about to head back to America. And we knew that the next week was that the big vision builders offering. And all the money that we had saved and we'd sort of got a bit settled, but nowhere near settled. We still only had one car in America. And, and I said to my wife after about four months, I said, I, I feel like we're meant to sow $10,000 in that offering next week. And for us right then, that was all of it. That was everything. That was the safety net. You know, everything had kind of whittled to set yourself up in another country. That was it. And I told my wife, because we're in Melbourne and we're about to go back, and I said, look, I actually feel like, I told her the story that I just told you, and I felt like God said, if we sow in tens, we'll reap in tens. And she says, you know, I feel that's God. I'm like, you're not meant to say that. Because I wanted to be able to blame you, like Adam did in the garden. Sorry, God, I wanted to. I'm spiritual, but it's the woman you gave me. But straight away, she says, no, I feel like it's God. You know, the amazing thing, we were on our way back to the airport and, and, and I had this family from our church ring us. We hadn't even put the offering in yet because we we're gonna do it, you know, when we got to church. And, and they picked us up from the airport. They said, we wanna pick you up from the airport. And they, they, they took us to their house before they took us home. And we we're kind of wondering what was going on. And they opened up their garage and there was a brand new car in there. I think it was valued at, 32,000 US dollars that them as a family felt God speak to about buying for us. The amazing thing, I went home, I was jet lagged. I, I, we just flown from, you know, straight to America. I'm laying down, I'm jet lagged. And, and then I look up, my wife's got this prayer wall on, on, on her wall that's been there a year. The exact car that is in our garage at that moment has been on her wall for 12 months. See, I wanna tell you that he's a rewarder. I want to tell you that He's not a taskmaster that just keeps demanding. He loves to reward. He loves to reward. And there's nothing wrong with attaching faith to what I'm sowing. It's actually a weapon that God has given you. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, that, that Scripture, He says, when you pray, expect that God will reward you. When you fast, expect that God will reward you. But then we have this weird thing in our life that He says, when you give, expect that God will reward you. Like, would you ever pray and not expect something to change? Would you ever fast and not expect something to change? Well, then why do we give but not expect and believe that something's gonna change? See, if I throw a tennis ball in the air, what do I do? Once I throw it in the air, I stand positioned, ready to catch the ball because I understand the law of gravity that says that the ball went up. I better get ready because it's about to come back down. When you understand the law of sowing and reaping, that God's not a taskmaster, He's a rewarder, that when you sow, yes, it's with a, a loving motive and a good heart for the kingdom, but you know what? When I sow, I'm gonna stand ready. I'm believing for new clients for my business. I'm believing for new opportunities. I'm believing for pay rises. And then the second thing, just in the last few minutes, the second thing is He, he saw... God the Father as a judge instead of a dad. 
See, when, when religiosity, ta, uh, you know, works-based Christianity gets in your mind, you, you stop seeing him as a dad. You see him as a judge. You know what a judge does? A judge's job is to look at behaviour and determine your worth, in a sense. That's his job. His job is to look at what's been done and then determine the life that you're gonna live based on what you've done. A father simply looks at who you are and decides the worth that you are worthy because you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. See, but when religiosity gets in our mind, we start to see him as he's this judge that's always there. I remember praying for this one young guy that was struggling with different sexual stuff and, and I was praying for him and as I was praying, I saw this picture of this little kind of almost like a demon and it was holding this measuring stick. And as soon as I saw this picture, I'd never seen it before, I knew it was a religious spirit. Because what a religious spirit does is it constantly holds up a measuring stick over your life. See, when a measuring stick is held up, there's only two ways that you can go. One is it's held up and you're like, yeah, well, at least I'm not like that other lady. Because I do this and I do that and she doesn't do that. Now you're in pride. But actually where most of us go when the measuring stick's put up, yeah, I fall short. Wish I was a better Christian. Wish I was a better dad. Wish I was a better husband. Wish I was a better prayer. And that, that measuring stick, either one, you're in pride because you think you're better than everyone else, or two, you feel unworthy and not good enough. But let me tell you something. There's only one measuring stick that counts, and that is the cross of Calvary. It's Jesus on the cross that when He went to that cross, He said, I'm paying the price for every mess up, every mistake, every weakness, every sin. And because I've let my blood come out of my body and I've paid this price, I can say to you, no matter what you've done, who you are or where you've been, you are worthy. You are righteous. You are a child of the Most High God. You are someone that I love and that I want to bless. And so, as I close with this story and then we'll pray. I remember preaching at a youth camp in England and there was about a thousand teenagers and I'd spoke about the love of the Father and God just moved in a, in a powerful way. Kids were literally, without exaggerating, maybe 30, 40% of the kids in the room were literally bawling their eyes out. All you could hear was the cry. It's one of the most special moments I've ever experienced as a minister. And these kids, as we spoke about a love of the Father, a similar message to this. And then right at the end of the service, there was a man in a yellow vest who was one of the volunteers. He's probably 70 years old. He had a very strong English accent. And he came up to me and he was bawling his eyes. He's a blubbering mess. I could hardly understand him because of the tears, but also because of the strong accent. He came to me and he said, after I spoke on the love of the Father, he's a volunteer, he's 70. He come to me, he says, I've been in church my whole life. And tonight, I realise he loves me just the way I am. And, and, and we embraced and we hugged and I prayed for this man. It's an incredible privilege and it was a beautiful moment, but at the same time, it was a sad moment. 
because I thought, how long have you been in the house? You've been in the house your whole life, but you're a coin that was lost in religion. It was robbing you because your father, he's not a judge waiting to just tell you off. He's not a taskmaster that's just demanding a whole heap of things and not much in return. He's a wonderful, loving Father that loves to reward. He loves to bless. It puts a smile on His face when your children end up blessed, when you end up blessed. But so often we get lost in religion. Just with every eye closed right now, I wanna ask a question. I wonder if you're in this place today. And just, I wanna give people a moment right now. Maybe you relate more to the younger brother who was lost in the world. And you know that at one time, you, you've gone away in your heart. You, you're caught up in the thickets of life. You've found yourself in some stuck in some things of the world. And just like the younger brother, I'm not gonna get you out. The, oh, shh. I'm not gonna get you out the front. But if you know in just a moment, you say, you know what, I need to get right with God. I need to give my life back to God because I've gone back in the world. Or two, maybe you're here today and you actually relate more to the older brother. You say, Lucas, if I be honest, I, I haven't sensed God's presence for a long time. It, it hasn't felt like a party at all. And again, please, we have seasons. But you know in your heart that it's actually become about works-based Christianity. And I'm not saying to stop doing the stuff. I'm just saying to get the, the thing right where He is the priority and it's His love and out of that that I do those things. So if you're in either of those two groups, you're either coming back, giving your life to God. Today's the day. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. Today is the day that you say enough's enough. Let me tell you, if you're stuck in the world right now, it'll only chew you up and spit you out. Today's the day to say yes. Or like I said, you're here and you know that you're lost in religion. If that's you, with every eye closed, every head bowed. When I count to three, if you know either of those two groups, I'm not gonna get you out of the front, I'm not gonna embarrass you. But so I know who to pray for. If that's you today, when I get to three, you'll lift your hand, I'll see it. Put your hand down. One, friend, I tell you, he loves you so much. Two, I tell you, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been or who you are, you're God's precious son or daughter. Three all over this place right now. Yeah, I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand over there. I see your hand there, sir. I, I, I see your hand over there. Come on, someone else just saying yes. He loves your friend so much. Yeah, I see your hand down the front. Yeah, I see your hand there. Come on, just, I, I feel like there's more. There's someone and you know you're caught in the world, but today's the day that you're saying, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Come on, is there anyone else that wants to do that? Today? I'm gonna ask one last time. One last time, if that's you, quickly put up your hand. I'm waiting for you right now. I feel like there's, yeah, I see your hand. So proud of you. Come on, good on you. Come on, come on. Don't ever let pride stop you. Good on you, sir. So proud of you. So proud of you. I'm telling you, heaven is proud of you, sir. I'm telling you, there's good things in your future. There is blessing in your future. Come on, someone else just saying yes. Just with every eye closed, every head bowed, one last time, I wanna get every single person to lift your hand because I wanna include you in the prayer I'm about to pray. One last time, put your hand up nice and high if you were lifting your hand. I wanna make sure I get every single person. One here, two over here, three over here, four over here, five over here, six over here, young lady here, seven people. So proud of each one of you. Here's what we're gonna do. You put your hand down. We're gonna pray a prayer. 
I'm going to be done in one minute. But just those seven people that lifted your hand, I want you to mean these words with all your heart. But as a church family, we're going to pray them with you. So let's all pray together. But if you're one of the seven, mean it with all your heart. Say, dear Father. Come on, let's all pray. Say, dear Father. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Today, I repent of everything that I've done wrong. And I thank you for your forgiveness. Today, I give you my heart and my life. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just 30 seconds, just everyone where you are, just lift your hands to heaven. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close with this last prayer. Father, I just thank you right now. God, just for a touch of your love in this place. God, I pray right now that every single person would know that they are incredibly valuable. <laughs> Not because of what they've done or haven't done, but simply because of who they are. That there's not a person in this room that isn't a child of the Most High God. And I just pray right now that even something would break in your mind, in your mindset, where, where you would come to this beautiful place where you would truly understand that I am loved, not because of what I do, but truly because of who I am. That I am a son or a daughter of the Most High God, that my mistakes do not cancel me out. So I just declare right now, God, I come against all guilt. I come against all shame. I see someone right now, you're being set free from major anxiety right now. Major anxiety, because God's shifting something on the inside where you've been caught up in works, trying to impress and go through all the hoops. But right now, God's breaking that. There it is. He's it's a female right now. He's breaking anxiety off of your life right now. And He's saying, no more. I come against that spirit of fear. And I say, it's broken in the name of Jesus Christ. It's finished. It's done. There is a full stop. It is a new chapter. I declare the goodness of God. Father, bless your people and help us to see every good thing you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's give God praise in this place. Thanks so much, guys.